Welcome to Prairie Doc On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation of 501c3 provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Doc programs. Please follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube and go to prairiedoc.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Orthopedic surgeons specialize in the musculoskeletal system, the bones, joints, ligaments, tendons, and muscles essential to movement and everyday life. Making sure you can move tonight on call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening and welcome to the 22nd season of On Call with the Prairie Doc medical information based on science, built on trust. I'm Dr. Kelly Evans-Hollinger, your Prairie Doc host. Tonight, we will be discussing orthopedics. Thank you for joining us. In the studio this evening, on the campus of South Dakota State University in Brookings, is Dr. Jonathan Buchanan from Avera Orthopedics in Sioux Falls, and Dr. Luke Rasmussen from the Orthopedic Institute. Welcome, guys. Thanks for coming. Um, well, I'm gonna just ask you to tell us a little bit about yourselves. What do you do and what kind of, what's your path? How long have you been in South Dakota? You wanna start, John? You bet. Um, I am a primary care sports medicine physician that works in the orthopedic department. So my role in the orthopedic department is finding ways to treat joint and muscle and bone injuries without the use of surgery. So a lot of what I do is based on you know, people's biomechanics help them move better, mm -hmm. helping live better without needing to perform surgery. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, and how about you, Luke? What do you do? Uh, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Mm -hmm. I specialize in uh, hip and knee replacement. I uh, went through uh, training at the University of Florida in Jacksonville and then uh, did a subspecialty fellowship in Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, particularly looking at minimally invasive ways of performing uh, hip replacement and knee replacement and how to uh, incorporate technology into performing these procedures. Great. So we've got a breadth of knowledge ready to answer our viewers' questions tonight. Before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions for tonight's discussion about orthopedics. Viewers can contact us in three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org, or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you all to ask early, our questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. So we'll get started with some questions. I, we do have uh, a first question that came from email. Uh, someone who states, over 30 years ago, their finger was slammed in a door at the first joint on my pointer finger. I'm not sure which joint that means. Over the years, it's been a bit painful. Um, the knuckle is big with arthritis and painful to the point I cannot use it most of the time. Is there anything that can be done for such an old injury? What would you say, yeah. John? Well. <laughs> Injuries cause damage to bones and joints, mm -hmm. and um, probably the most difficult to treat and the least resilient part of any uh, part of that joint is the cartilage. Mm -hmm. So if there's a, a trauma that happened to a finger, I mean, a, 
I'm hoping that an x-ray was done initially to see if there was a fracture, mm -hmm. um, because sometimes fractures can grow back crooked mm -hmm. or have extra bony growth on them that just doesn't go away. So mm -hmm. that can certainly cause pain. But if it's been that long, it's probably more arthritis. We call it post-traumatic arthritis mm -hmm. or arthritis after the trauma. Um, you get cartilage is nice and smooth when you're born and through life and it's many vicissitudes. There's little cracks and, and divots and trauma like getting your finger slammed in the door is definitely going to be, uh, would qualify. Mm -hmm. So those, the cartilage starts to wear out, you get little cracks and then that crack turns into more of a softening of the whole cartilage. And before you know it, there's no cartilage left and you, your bones are striking against the bones. Um, bones are very sensitive. They don't like banging into each other. So um, my my usual recommendation, well there's really three different factors that come into arthritis. One of them is trauma we talked about. The other one is genes. You can't pick your parents. So if mom and dad have bad arthritis, bad cartilage, you're more likely to get it. Mm -hmm. And the third is your inflammatory state. So what types of things are you doing in your life that increase your body's inflammation? Mm -hmm. I always say stress, diet, and sleep. Those three things lead to inflammation in the body. So um, I've been hurting that long. I mean it's I, I typically go to a, a therapist. Is there a way to restore range of motion using an occupational or hand therapist? Um, that can certainly help. Um, I do a lot in the way of injections. Um, if the, you've got a lot of space between the bones, sure you can get a needle in there. If it's narrower, it's a lot harder. Mm -hmm. And so I use ultrasound if there's really not much space there mm -hmm. to make sure that needle's in that millimeter or so yeah. space left. Yeah. These joints um, are small joints in the first place, right? Joints, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's different and than a knee. Get smaller, so uh -huh. I would inject it just to get it feeling better. Um, steroid to make sure that's where the pain generator is. Mm -hmm. it could be a nerve next, next door that's causing sure. pain. If that helps, then um, I've done quite a bit with PRP, uh, platelet-rich plasma. Mm -hmm. um, which is a stem cell based procedure to help yeah. activate cells in the body to mm -hmm. regenerate the cartilage. Yeah, so. so there may be some things that can be done. Some of those yeah. old injuries can be difficult to make a lot better. But For sure. Okay. Um, we had a call from someone in Tyler, Minnesota asking, what are some of the criteria for shoulder replacement surgery? Um, can you talk a little bit about shoulder surgery, Luke, and what types of patients might get that surgery? What might help you make decisions about that? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's really, uh, we have to change our treatment strategies based off of the injury that the patient has. Mm -hmm. And in two broad spectrums, shoulder injuries come in two main forms, the soft tissue injuries as well as the hard tissue injuries, the arthritis or bone-to-bone mm -hmm. -bone contact fall into the arthritis category. And in those states, replacement's a great option. In the soft tissue injuries, which come in a, a variety of forms, whether it's neurologic injury, whether it's uh, rotator cuff pathologies, mm -hmm. And the treatments for those are to effectively repair the uh, injury um, and then work on restoring the patient's uh, native range of motion. Mm -hmm. uh, additionally, both of those categories come in stages. There's early stage arthritis, there's early stage rotator cuff disease. Mm -hmm. Those can often be treated non-operatively. Injections, physical therapy, various strategies at getting a patient's body to recover its ability to do your daily activities. Um, when those strategies fail uh, or the disease becomes severe enough that patients can't get that functional recovery, um, that's when surgery comes in to really recreate the patient's anatomy in a different way that gives them back the function that they need on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. What can patients that might be candidates for a shoulder replacement, so let's say bad shoulder arthritis, what can they expect 
after surgery? What's the recovery like? Mm -hmm. What are the downsides to surgery? Uh, the downsides of surgery is we're taking a, a piece of the native bone away. Mm -hmm. The reason we're doing that is that native bone, that native cartilage that used to be there no longer are and they're no longer doing their job. So shoulder uh, surgery recovery uh, comes again to flavors a, an anatomic shoulder replacement which aims to replace the shoulder uh, with a device that is shaped like your native joint. Um, and there's another reverse total shoulder replacement that actually reverses uh, the way the shoulder works. The cup is now on the, on the humerus um, and the ball is now attached to the glenoid or the shoulder blade where the, the cup used to be. Uh, the benefits of this surgery is it changes some of the geometry of the shoulder to overcome rotator cuff pathology um, as well as some of the stability problems that can come with arthritis. Mm. So that allows restoration of normal shoulder function through an atypical uh, reversed anatomic fashion. Mm -hmm. um, for the first part of recovery, it's a lot of uh, limited weight bearing, bracing, and then working with physical therapy slowly over time to improve your range of motion and strength. Mm -hmm. um, but the true step-by-step, -step, how long it takes to recover is very variable on what surgery was performed and how it was done. Sure, great. Um, let's see, we had an email question. What are the options for deterioration of the great toe joint? So I guess, let's assume this person's talking about the MTP joint of the of the first toe. So it'd be a typical place that people get gout and some other yeah. injuries or, you know, maybe some uh, bunion deformities, that kind of thing. What kind of things can you do for people having pain there, Chad? Yeah, well, you gotta find out the reason for the pain yeah. first. I mean, you mentioned a lot of things that can cause that joint to break down. Um, gout is most likely diet related, so certain foods increase your body's um, uric acid production. Uric acid is a breakdown of certain DNA, um, parts of the DNA system, the prolines. Um, and uh, I can't forget my basic chemistry. Purity, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Um, so certain, like the, the textbook question is if a person's eating too much meat and drinking too much beer, they get gout because their toe is really swollen. Mm -hmm. um, so you cut down on meat intake, cut down on um, alcohol consumption, and you could go away. So yeah, if the pain, the toe is damaged because from years of gout, arth regular wear and tear, osteoarthritis can take over and cause a problem. But I find that a lot of patients can just change up their diet, eat a little bit more clean, more vegetables, less, or, yeah, more plant, plants, less animals. Mm -hmm. um, eat, drink more water to keep their kidneys functioning, and magically their toe pain goes away. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. Diet. Um, the MTP can be loaded if your arch is weak. Mm -hmm. So you've got a, an arch that's really flat, and it drops in, and you're putting walking off that mm -hmm. great toe all the time, um, getting your feet stronger. I'm a big fan of barefoot one, running and barefoot walking and keeping those intrinsic muscles strong. That'll lift that up off the ground, and it's not whacking the ground anymore. And so you've got more strength there. So getting it strong is number one, number two. Mm -hmm. As doctors say, diet and exercise, right? Mm -hmm. um, after that, you know, people use orthotics, something that's mm -hmm. more custom to kind of force that foot into that position. Um, and there's a very, you know, a variety of injections that can help. Um, if the injections don't help, then you can certainly remove the joint, fuse it. Mm -hmm. You lose a little bit of this motion, but in your toe, you're not really picking things up with your toes anyway. So yeah. that's kind of a, a good option as well. Yeah, yeah. But I, I'm always amazed at how much 
foot pathology I see as a primary care doctor. I yeah. never imagined that I yeah. would have to figure out uh, what's wrong with people's feet as much as we do. It's, <laughs> but if your foot hurts, then it's hard to do a lot of stuff. So people come in. The body's built as a chain. Yeah. And every <laughs> joint affects the joint adjacent to it and then mm -hmm. further up in the stream. So you can oftentimes find that there's a, a straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, it feels like it's a real applicable uh, mm -hmm. strategy. The foot hurts, then the knee hurts, then the hip hurts, and it just keeps moving up unless the initial issue is addressed. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Exactly. We have a, another question to tail right off of that. We have a caller who broke their right femur in April and since then has had pain in both ankles, worried about arthritis. Is this something that you've seen after a hip or femur injury that people might develop new pain? It, it's, it's very common. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it, there's a possibility of arthritis. Mm -hmm. uh, as an independent pathology from the original injury. Sure. More commonly though, we see uh, pain that flares up because of irregular ambulation. They broke their femur, it was fixed, it takes a long time to recover from, and during that time the rest of their body wasn't exercised in, in a way that is normal. And mm -hmm. oftentimes I see patients come in with limps and their, their poor back posture, mm -hmm. and all those things are affected, ankles as well. Um, April is still relatively recent. We've had enough time to help regenerate some of the bone around the fracture site to make that solid. Now, next step is tackle the soft tissues and see if they can restore that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm a firm believer that we sit on the most important muscles we have. Mm. <laughs> and if you're not using your glutes, you're really not working hard. You're not, you're, you're, everything's gonna fall apart. Mm -hmm. And so if you break a femur, you're not really walking around on it very much. Sure. And so your glutes just, are gone. Mm -hmm. And so working on a really good proximal core, low back, glute strengthening program will magically bring their arches up and their 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 ankles won't wear as much on the inside. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah, super good. important. Um, okay, we've got, let's see, a caller from Oklahoma asking about are occasional cortisone or steroid shots okay for long-term joint pain management or is surgery the better option? What would you say to that, Luke? Uh, it depends on yeah. the pathology. Mm -hmm. um, I love cortisone, it's an inexpensive thing to uh, give and in the right uh, patient in the right pathology, it's a great option. Um, I'm not a fan of injections long-term for aches and pains. Um, I want a more targeted diagnosis like osteoarthritis. Uh, because, again, we're treating the inflammation that's caused by the osteoarthritis that secondarily causes the mm -hmm. symptoms. Um, uh, I'm a big fan of if they're working well for us in the right circumstances and they're lasting long enough, uh, it's a great and easy thing to repeat. Um, when those stop working long enough, that's when we, we talk about surgery, mm -hmm. when we're not getting the effect of the conservative management. Um, I'm also a fan of not just tackling this with one item. It's not a cortisone alone option. There are other medications, there's other therapies, there's mm -hmm. other ways of strengthening our body to overcome pain as well. All of them gotta be considered. Mm -hmm. uh, arthritis is not, is not just a simple one trick answer to making things better. Uh, we've gotta address multiple things at a time to A, prolong the time that someone has with a native joint, as well as prep them for replacement when that day comes. Yeah, great. I would agree. There's, there's a study that I like to quote to my patients that they had 100 knees, 50 patients, and they injected the right knee with steroid and the left knee with sugar water. Mm -hmm. And they did it every three months for two years. They did x-rays at the beginning of those two years. They did x-rays at the end of those two years. And the knee that got the steroid had significantly worse arthritis by image than the one that didn't. 
the interesting thing is both knees got better with the injections. Mm -hmm. So is there a magic placebo that can help with the sugar water injection? Who knows? Does it change the chemistry? Who knows? But um, when the question says occasionally, my question is how often is occasionally? Yeah. What's so, too often? Exactly. So yeah. if so you can't you can't do it more than every three months mm -hmm. in my in my because it just the steroid is still in there. You're adding steroid to steroid. Um, my rule is if it's been if you had the injection three months later you had another one and my, if you want another one after three more months, my, my, my question is always, what's your goal here? Mm -hmm. Steroid I only use as a bridge to get people working better and working stronger. So I, I say, I will give you a steroid injection if you commit to physical therapy, if you commit to a gluteal strengthening program, if you work on fixing your alignment, because almost every knee does this. Mm -hmm. They collapse on one part because they're not using their glutes to keep their knees straight. Mm -hmm. um, and then if they refuse to do it, I say, well, there's other things we can do to save your cartilage. Them things that you mentioned, other, mm -hmm. other types of injections. I, I use a gel stuff called hyaluronic acid. Mm -hmm. It's called a lot of different brand names, but mm -hmm. essentially it's just a cushion that goes in the knee. You inject a little bit of gel, it cushions the knee, lasts for longer than the steroid, doesn't damage the cartilage like the steroid does. Mm -hmm. And I also use a lot of stem cell-based therapy, especially for knee arthritis. Because like you said, once you get the knee replaced, you can't go back and undo it, right? Mm -hmm. You gotta push it off as long as you can, especially if you're in your 40s or 50s, because the replacements, I'm not sure what you're quoting patients, but they don't last forever. Mm -hmm. So they'll break down after, you know, I usually tell people 15, 20 years, maybe 25 years, and then you need another one, so. Mm -hmm. And we have, uh, uh newer technologies when it comes out with uh, the polyethylene, the plastic that goes in between knee replacements. As of the 2000 era, mm -hmm. we moved for, to, from a, uh, a high-density polyethylene to a highly cross-linked high-density polyethylene component. Um, and we have about 20 years of data on mm -hmm. those replacements, again, different for hips, different for knees, but right. uh, that's showing much improved results compared to the 80s and 90s replacements that, and yeah, that lasted 20 years uh, and had limited data at 20 years. Yeah. We have 20 years of the data on this new stuff. We're into that close to 90, 95% depending on the joints that being great. replaced. Awesome. Uh, but we don't know how long those are gonna last. And right. again, it does depend on how you use it. it. Depends on your body habitus, how much weight you're putting through that joint. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and it's something that a simple monitoring process, x-rays every few years to make sure that you're not wearing through the plastic and causing mm -hmm. a bigger damage problem to the knee is a reasonable thing to do. Yeah. You just answered one of our viewers from Aberdeen's questions there, so thanks for that, guys. <laughs> Sounding like something out of a sci-fi movie, 3D printed joint replacements are a relatively new surgery that offers an alternative to the tried and true methods. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower takes us to Sioux Falls to see how it works. Dr. Dustin Bechtold performs 3D printed joint replacements at Avera Orthopedics in Sioux Falls. He says research for this type of treatment has ramped up in the past couple years. In this case, the actual implants are in titanium, but there are resins that are used for modeling and for uh, the preparation used in the surgery. Dr. Bechtold says older patients have used it for joint replacement, but younger patients use the 3D printing for removing tumors on their bones. They can be done around shoulders, hips, knees. Uh, a lot of the applications are for tumor currently, where if a bone has to be removed because of a tumor and that bone needs to be reconstructed, that's a good application. Or around joint replacements, where there's bone loss and you have to replace that bone. 
The process is started with a CAT scan of the impacted bone. It then is sent to a company who creates the mold of the bone needed along with the other parts. It's then given to the surgeon to start the surgery. The surgeon with that technical team would decide exactly how to position that implant, how you would want the, the socket part of that pelvic implant, for example, to be oriented uh, and then fabricated. And that, takes, that does take quite some time. Dr. Bechtold says a big advantage of 3D printed joint replacement is the product is specific to that person's bone and can be better than usual methods. The, probably the best advantage is when there's a huge defect or a complicated defect that you can't fill in with normal uh, prosthetic parts. However, a side effect is the long rest time needed along with digging through the body to reach the bone. To get that part in there, you, you, we forget sometimes that there's a lot of tissue and muscle attachments and other parts that are in the way. So uh, getting access to all of this bone and being able to support that component uh, can be a little bit challenging. Overall, Dr. Bechtold is hopeful for the future of this technology. But with high costs, along with some surgeons preferring other surgeries, Dr. Bechtold says all we can do is wait to see how it turns out. There may come a time where uh, that becomes a, a series of studies might show that people who have a truly customized set of implants placed in a customized fashion might do better. I think in that moment would, would shift more toward that type of a technology. Uh, so far it just hasn't borne out to be better. Orthopedics is a field that a lot of new technology comes in, so this is a great example. We were talking earlier with our students about your use of robots with orthopedic surgery. Tell us a little bit about that. How long has that been around and how does that differ from your sort of traditional joint replacement surgery, Luke? Yeah, uh, the robotic surgery has really been developed over the last 10 or so years in orthopedic surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, in similar to the, the Da Vinci that we have in general surgery, mm -hmm. to follow course, we've had several robots uh, come out uh, in ortho aimed at knee replacements and subsequently hip replacements as well. Mm -hmm. The idea of a robot is it uses two combined technologies, and one is a navigation system of some sort, whether that's a mechanical arm or a GPS system with uh, markers that are placed on the patient. That allows us to, uh, in real time, actually analyze the patient, do very precise measurements on their native anatomy, mm -hmm. um, and then record that. Um, and then we take in the robotic side where we plan out a, uh, a knee replacement, a hip replacement on that particular patient, something that can be done even before the surgery starts, mm -hmm. um, and then use the mechanical arm to help us perform that surgery during the procedure itself. When we compare uh, traditional methods with robotic methods, we know we can be uh, improved accuracy around a degree or a millimeter uh, mm -hmm. from our intended targets, uh, where that tends to be slightly more and more uh, traditional methods, as well as be consistent over time. The last part of that is it allows us to take that data that we performed in the surgery itself, and that gets analyzed over time. Mm -hmm. And it's led to some new treatment ideologies, specifically for knee replacement, uh, some of the alignment strategies that we use traditionally were going into more functional alignments or more like the patient's native anatomy, which means faster recovery and more native, more mm -hmm. normal feeling knee. Mm -hmm.
Interesting. Um, yeah, that is very cool. And you talked about just how the actual artificial joints have have grown differently compared to decades past and maybe longer lasting as well. So, okay. Um, we have a, a caller from Ocoma who asked another question. Um, is it x-ray a valid test for diagnosing arthritis? Do we need do we need fancier imaging to diagnose arthritis? What would you say to that, John? Um, I, I like the old school technology. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think robotics is awesome, mm -hmm. but um, I get a lot of patients think, oh, I have to have my MRI, I need to know mm -hmm. what that cartilage looks like. And I'm like, if I can see that your bones are starting to wear out, I don't need yeah. the MRI. It's Absolutely. not going to tell me more than I already yeah. know. X-ray is usually good enough even for your patients that at the stage of joint replacement, right? Absolutely. For diagnosis anyways. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it comes as you train, as you look at many, many imaging, uh, you can take an X-ray, which is just two planes of a patient's joint, and see what's there and what's not and build an idea of what their joint looks like mm -hmm. in three life. The patients love a CT scan, they love an MRI mm -hmm. because we can take it in 3D and see every little bit and they can understand that a little bit better from a three-dimensional aspect. But specifically for osteoarthritis, x-rays are the, the diagnostic standard. Mm -hmm. I can see just as much as I need to know in an x-ray as I can an MRI test. Great. Uh, we had a caller from Castlewood asking, do we recommend um, CBD or any cannabis to help with joint pain? Do we have data on that, John? I don't know. Do you have if patients asking you that question? I get that question yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're with dealing with chronic pain mm -hmm. and kind of the anxiety surrounding chronic pain. There's um, some good data for um, CBD for treating that. Um, we don't know the mechanism, so mm -hmm. there's not a lot of basic science studies looking at why CBD seems to work. Mm -hmm. But I have a lot of patients that swear by it, and they think that it works great. So mm -hmm. it's, I don't see any reason it's going to harm them. Mm -hmm. If it's not going to harm them, I don't see why not let them do it. Yeah, I think it's, it's challenging. We just don't have great data about right. these things right now. So um, caller from Rapid City who asked, can or should one be tested for titanium allergy or any metal allergies before a joint replacement surgery? Is that something that comes up for you, Luke? It does, and there's a you know possibility data on on metal allergies in a hip mm. and knee replacement, um, and some more uh, recent data that pushed from metal on metal joint replacement in the United States, which. Uh, it's kind of fallen out of favor because there is measurable ion levels in, mm. in the cobalt chrome, especially when it's articulating with another metal component. Um, so we've fallen back to more of that uh, metal on plastic articulation most commonly or a uh, actually a ceramic on plastic, which mm. has a better wear profile. Um, as for uh, routine testing for mm. allergies, uh, it's not something that I've done regularly. I do have patients who report history of uh, trouble with exposure to, meta, uh, to different metal ions. There are options of various components that mm. you can use to help accommodate that. Um, ones that are either coated with an, an oxidated surface that doesn't have uh, the reaction profile um, uh, as, as well as some other techniques at that. We talk through the data. We say, this is what it shows. These are the outcomes. Is this something that I would uh, do this type of knee replacement over this one? Am I willing to take a different type of robot or a different surgery altogether to get that implant in order to accommodate that? And that's really the patient's decision in my mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, we had an email question. Talk about the applications and interventions used to impact spinal nerves when things like heat, cold, ultrasound, chiropractic care, et cetera, do not resolve the pain. So you don't talk about a little bit about, I guess we're talking about back pain. We're talking about back pain. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite topic. Yeah, it's tough, no, isn't it? <laughs> back pain is, back pain is 
difficult for physicians because it's so complex. Yeah. There's so many things coming out of that that bamboo stick of the mm -hmm. spine. Um, and nerves get compressed by a lot of different things, mm -hmm. um, discs for an acute back pain, um, arthritic you know, entities on the back part for more of a chronic type back pain. If you're doing this, it's usually your arthritis. If you're doing this, it's usually your disc. Straighter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but all you gotta do is say the word posture yeah. and everyone snaps to attention <laughs> like their mother's looking at them. Um, but that ultimately, heat and ice can be helpful temporarily. Mm -hmm. But the only way to fix back pain is good posture, right? The only way to prevent good back pain or back problems is, is good posture, mm -hmm. core strengthening. Um, one of my favorite forms of treatment for back pain is actually Pilates. Mm. They looked at, um, there was a study that looked at um, different types of non-operative treatment for back pain, um, comparing physical therapy, um, yoga, tai chi, and you know, massage, mm -hmm. whatever, and Pilates. And the only one that really helped, my apology to the physical therapist listening, <laughs> was Pilates because there's such a deep set of muscles in the mm -hmm. body that are not used unless you're holding certain positions. And Pilates will put you through that. So my number one is always Pilates for back pain. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, and that, that setting that aside, people sometimes tend to degenerate over time and they've actually lost their ability to use those muscles mm -hmm. and then you're dealing with more just the pain from nerves, mm -hmm. um, which can be treated certainly with different forms of injections. Um, I've recently done a lot more um, orthobiologic or stem cell based injections for back pain, mm -hmm. treating both nerve roots, facets, and I don't do discs, I don't do um, fluoroscopy. I do everything under ultrasound and I just can't see through the bone to get to the disc. Um, but the idea is your, your vertebral bodies are this big and they were designed to be this big but the disc degenerates and it pinches the nerve. And you can't really get it back to that position without putting something in there and that exists but the ligaments on either side become unstable. Mm -hmm. And so if you can inject platelets along those ligaments, it can shorten them up, tighten them up and give you more stability from within. Mm -hmm. A little more complex than yeah. Pilates, right? But um, that's kind of what I turn to. Okay, um, got a great question from email for for you, Luke. This person's scheduled to get a knee replacement, and the other knee will also be replaced in the near future. Mm -hmm. They are in great pain, trying to walk very far currently. After surgery, will it be much easier to walk distances? Can I that I cannot walk now, and how long can I expect it to last? <laughs> so, what do you tell your patients to expect after surgery, after knee replacement surgery? Let's talk about that, I guess. Absolutely. And yeah. for an uncomplicated primary knee replacement, the goal is to get you up and moving as soon as possible um, and then have a graduated recovery over mm -hmm. those first couple months. Depending on the severity of arthritis, some people notice a difference right away. Mm -hmm. We trade that bad arthritic pain and inflammation for the post-surgical pain, mm -hmm. which is a lot of soft tissue that needs to heal. Yeah. Um, there are techniques of trying to make that process faster, minimally invasive techniques, the use of the robotics. Uh, but for the, again, bad arthritic knee, some difference in the way you feel right away, up and moving, a week of recovery, anti-inflammatories, taking a break, letting your body recover, and then getting into physical therapy right away mm -hmm. to try to prevent stiffness that can be associated right. with a knee replacement. Um, for how long it takes, it's a very individual thing. Mm -hmm. I have patients who walk an extreme distance very early, and then I have some that take a while to get there. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a very individualistic thing for an individual surgery. Mm -hmm. um, how long it'll last, uh, again, we want 20 plus years out of every replacement. The data is there to suggest that 90 plus percent survive that long, mm -hmm. uh, if not complicated by other things like infections or fractures mm -hmm. or other problems. Um, but we just 
don't know the end date yet until we have in-person data on the new style of polyethylene component. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, so expect that you're gonna feel better. I'm right. hopeful for this patient. Okay, um, we had a caller from T asking, we talked a little about more shoulder replacement surgery, but this person actually asked, what does rotator cuff surgery involve and how long is that recovery? Talk mm -hmm. a little bit about what that surgery is usually like. Yeah, uh, usually an arthroscopic surgery here in the United States most commonly sometimes uh, necessitates a small open procedure to help with exposure and, and taking the muscles and bringing them back where they're supposed to be. There's four primary rotators about the shoulder um, and they're all attached in a cuff uh, about the outside of the humerus. Mm -hmm. So you engage these in various ways to help do the complex rotations of the shoulder, mm -hmm. elevation, uh, extension. It's all a combination of all these four muscles that pull that activate that motion. When one or more of those is torn, all of a sudden the other three are trying to do what that particular muscle used to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so when, again, the conservative measures aren't working anymore, they're having significant defects in the strength and motion mm -hmm. that they have, then repair is a great option. Take that tendon, reattach it to back to where it's supposed to be, mm -hmm. um, and then allow time for that tendon to actually grow down into the bone, which takes a, a period of time. Um, the initially, again, low range of motion exercises, uh, a lot of bracing for a period of time, and then through working with a therapist, guided improvement in range of motion and strength. Mm -hmm. It really takes a few months for that tendon to grow fully into bone, so there's, uh, again, graduated how much mm -hmm. you can do. You're not lifting a lot of heavy weights right away. Uh, the, the one thing that pushes us forward to say, let's get a rotator cuff surgery sooner than later, mm -hmm. is those muscles, if they are not attached to something distally, they start to retract farther and farther back away from where they're supposed to be. And you're not always able to bring them back to where they should be and attach them in an anatomic fashion. Mm -hmm. um, and that brings us into less anatomic reconstruction options and potentially less, out, less positive outcomes for the mm -hmm. patient. Great. And you also get some atrophy. Those muscles that are not attached, you lose the muscle belly. Mm -hmm. yeah, you're just, you lose it. You lose it, exactly. So don't wait too long before mm -hmm. you do those. Yeah. Scoliosis is a sideways curvature of the spine that is most often diagnosed in adolescence. Treatment for this curvature for the last 50 years has been either a brace or spinal fusion. Join Prairie Doc as we hear from Dr. Jeffrey Haft at Avera Orthopedics about a new option that may help some with scoliosis. I see lots of scoliosis patients, and for the last 50 years, the treatment for scoliosis for a mild curve has been a brace, and braces are pretty effective if your curve is small. But as the curve started getting bigger, it was basically watch it, and if it gets too big, we fuse the spine. And so the downside to fusion surgery is that you're taking a young person and eliminating movement over, say, two-thirds of their entire spine. And what this device is, is it's an internal brace. From a mechanical standpoint, it's a pretty simple device. It's just a device that goes inside the spine, one hour operation, you get a hold of the spine with a couple screws and put a distraction device between those points. You take the curved spine and you distract it and make it straight. Recovery is much faster too, so you get an internal brace and you, know, you have some activity restrictions for six or eight weeks as opposed to six or eight months and then the but the real benefit is that you retain your spine motion most patients will have it removed three to five years after it's in just like braces on your teeth so you straighten your teeth out and then eventually you take it out now we know when you take braces off your teeth you have to wear a retainer because the 
the spine or the, the teeth can move back and get a little crooked again. We think the spine will be the same way. We think it will get it a lot straighter. We remove it. It may sag back into a little bit of curve, but not the kind of curve that requires a fusion procedure. That's the long-term goal is to take a big group of patients, all of whom would have ended up with a fusion and hopefully get the majority of them maintaining flexibility of their spine into adulthood. Yeah, we were one of the first three centers in the United States to offer this as an option to our patients and, and they've embraced it and it's, it's been fun. We have patients who are uh, maybe a little over three years out now from the procedure doing fantastic. So it's, it's been really wonderful to see this and it's, it's made me more excited to, to take care of scoliosis, to have something new. We're cautious, you know, anytime there's something new, it doesn't mean it's better. So we're always thoughtful and cautious about what, what we provide for our patients. But the things, the things that are happening around spine surgery, particularly young person spine surgery are amazing. And they're all focused on avoiding long-term damage to the spine. information there. Um, we have a back pain question, so why don't we spin off of that. Uh, this email question had a back surgery in April, completed a physical therapy program and work out three times a week. Now they've developed a bursitis in their hip. Do you think it's due to walking differently or what would you typically see with that? What would you say about that, John? <laughs> Sorry, I missed the last part of that question because yeah. my hearing aids were going crazy. What, uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the hip pain after back surgery and recovery. Oh, yes. Yeah, do you yeah. think that's related to sort of a change in it, mechanics like it, we had uh, talked about before? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So it depends on what surgery they had. So if it's mm -hmm. a fusion, they had to cut through a lot of muscle to get there. And so a lot of the muscles um, need a lot of time to recover. Mm -hmm. and. So your, your pelvis is like a flat plate, and if the muscles that hold it up, the, the lumbar, th thoracolumbar fascia, isn't holding it flat, you're gonna start dropping your mm -hmm. hip every time you walk. Mm -hmm. We call that a Trendelenburg gait, and your glutes have to compensate for that or you tip over. Mm -hmm. And so those glutes are being overused, and where they attach is the trochanter. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people use the word trochanteric bursitis, oh, it's just my bursa again, mm -hmm. but bursa of themselves don't actually hurt by themselves, unless there's trauma or infection. Um, usually it's the tendon underneath that causes the bursa to fill up. Potato, potato, you inject the bursa, they feel better because you're also injecting the tendon sheath. Mm -hmm. But that absolutely has to do with this biomechanics. Lost yeah. core strength and you just gotta make up for it by getting the glute program started. Yeah. Great. Um, we had a caller from Millbank who tore a meniscus, so a tissue of the knee. Mm -hmm. What treatments are available for that? So I guess let's back up. Tell us what, what's a meniscus? How do yeah. people, I mean, this is a pretty common injury that we mm -hmm. see. So tell us a little bit about those injuries and what, what you recommend for patients, Luke. Yeah, the, the femur has a shape that is uh, asynchronous with the tibia. I mean, the tibia is relatively flat, kind of an open dish, and the femur is a more rounded mm -hmm. structure that uh, as you bend that, that kind of stays the same in that location. Uh, those gotta meet somewhere in the middle. If you have a point loading bone on bone, it causes a lot of pain. So the meniscus provides that. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a, a dish to see, you have one on the inside of your knee on the medial meniscus, mm -hmm. one on the outside and you call the lateral meniscus. Um, and those 
have different features that allow me to flex, extend, actually rotate the tibia as you're bending the knee. That helps you go up the stairs. Um, and it keeps that knee stable as well as provides a nice smooth surface to move, much like the cartilage beneath it. Mm -hmm. um, a tear of the meniscus is when that, that C that's supporting it uh, is no longer a C. Either it's been ruptured and it's broken open on one side, you can get tears there longitudinal or horizontal where they split apart. Mm -hmm. um, and the trouble is when that sort of tear ends up where it's not supposed to be. If mm -hmm. it starts articulating inside the joint, that can cause a lot of pain, that can cause the knee to lock up, mm -hmm. um, and secondarily, it can cause chondral damage and that's not reversible. Mm -hmm. So if you have that unstable meniscus tear, it's something that we should probably treat with surgery. Go in and either repair it if it's possible, if it's part of the meniscus that has a lot of blood flow and is gonna heal, um, or if it's part of the meniscus that's more medial and has less blood flow, um, then to take it out so it's mm -hmm. no longer flipping in and out. Mm -hmm. Are there some people that can heal a meniscus injury without surgery, or how do you make those decisions? Maybe it's particular to where the injury is. Absolutely, yeah. And, yeah. The, and the stability. Yeah. If it's ending up where it's not supposed to be, that's gotta come out. Yeah. If it's a tear that is relatively stable, it's mm -hmm. where it's supposed to be, um, then allow it to scar in, stay mm -hmm. stable. As long as it's not, not causing symptoms for the patient, not painful, that's perfectly fine, and we're also maintaining as much of your native meniscus as possible. I remember the meniscus is a cushion. Mm -hmm. And so if you remove the cushion because there's a small little tear in the area where it's not unstable and they just have pain, you remove the cushion, you have this cushion in the knee, so it's mm -hmm. going to wear it out a little bit faster. Mm -hmm. So Keep it if you can. Keep it if you can, yeah. absolutely. If it's, if it's mechanical and it's mm -hmm. getting locking up, absolutely, you got to take care of it. But mm -hmm. a lot of, if it's just pain, then I usually start with, with some conservative stuff absolutely. first. Yeah, great. Um, there was an email question. I had a knee replacement 10 years ago, and it's begun to hurt again while walking. Should I be concerned about that? Something you should talk to your orthopedic surgeon yeah. about. There's a lot of possible etiologies for that, whether it's the actual knee replacement itself or the soft tissue around the mm -hmm. knee replacement. Soft tissue around the knee replacement, that's gonna be something that we're gonna fix without surgery. But if you started to wear through that plastic, you have free-floating plastic pieces inside your knee, that can cause an immune reaction that subsequently eats away at the bone. It's something called osteolysis. Mm -hmm. um, and it, uh, especially in that older technology, knee and hip replacement, we saw quite frequently. Mm -hmm. uh, you let, ignore that long enough, uh, you can actually loosen the metal components and make a reconstructive option very difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the reasons I like to keep a close eye on my patients, even after, uh, you know, several years after a surgery, just a quick check and x-ray, make sure things mm -hmm. look good on the inside. So maybe don't wait too long on something like that. I, I'd, I'd see it getting yeah. an x-ray. Good. And then not all knee pain in old people is arthritis. Right. So I'm a big fan of doing at least a diagnostic injection, numb up everything in the joint, and if everything goes away, then the knee replacement might be your best option. But if it doesn't help at all, then you might have soft tissue stuff. You might have a, an, an old MCL that's just mm. barking at you. Mm -hmm. You might have had trauma to your saphenous nerve that's causing this knee pain that you think is coming from your joint. Mm -hmm. And I've had people that have had a knee replacement and their pain is exactly the same mm -hmm. and then I inject a, a nerve and magically their pain went away and I'm like, I'm sorry you had your knee replaced. I yeah, don't think you needed it. So mm -hmm. making sure you know what the problem is, the pain generator, before you do it is really important. Great. Um, we have a more general question off Facebook. Is surgery for osteoarthritis okay for those that are 50 years and up? So, I mean, 
I'd see an older population of patients, all, almost everyone I see go for knee mm -hmm. and hip replacements is over 50 years old. Is there a limit? I mean, how do you, how do you counsel patients as they're getting up there in age on whether a joint replacement surgery is the right choice? Uh, well, I always say my oldest hip replacement was in a 102-year-old. Mm -hmm. uh, my youngest hip replacement was in a 16-year-old. Yeah, and those are uh, obviously on the very far mm -hmm. end of the spectrum. We don't we don't do that unless it is a very obvious way that we can help a patient, and we have to counsel those patients that there are risks involved, especially a 16-year-old who's going to have multiple surgeries in their right. life because of that. Um, but if the patient is functional, is active, mm -hmm. and their arthritis is holding them back, not all 102-year-olds are the same. Right. Um, similarly, there's a lot of uh, 70 and 80-year-olds who are uh, relatively poor candidates for surgery mm -hmm. for various health reasons. Mm -hmm. This is all the reason for the consultation, mm -hmm. is taking the whole patient into account and, and trying to make a decision better. Surgery, not surgery, what's the best way mm -hmm. of getting you back to doing the things you want to do. Yeah, and I find a lot of my patients will meet with people like you, mm -hmm. get the facts, and then come back to me and say, "Is should I do this, should I not? And mm -hmm. I think that's great. Go back to the doc who knows you well and knows maybe a little more, you know, we can talk about surgical risk, which of course mm -hmm. people are worried about anyways. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, if it's gonna really improve your function, then I've, I find myself telling a lot of people to be less reserved about going for it with some of these surgeries. It's a great yeah. thing to do in the right patient for the yeah. right reason. Yeah, mm -hmm. I always say age is just a number. Yep. And I always say, have you ever heard of the Iron Nun? There's this woman named Madonna Bruder who is 102 now and she's run 70 Ironman triathlons. <laughs> <laughs> if she can do it at over 100, you know, and there's people in their 40s that are just terribly out of shape. Mm -hmm. They've been abusing their body with diabetes and smoking and being mm -hmm. overweight. and. So age is just a number. Yep, yep, we gotta look at the whole patient. Good, we got a couple minutes left. Um, we had an email question. I had a bone removed in my hand and carpal tunnel surgery done at the same time just over a year, a year ago. This person still occasionally does have pain or numbness with certain movements. Is that normal at this point? What do you see after a hand and wrist surgery? Yeah, sometimes. There's yeah. a lot of different flavors of carpal tunnel surgery. Uh -huh. um, I'm not a surgeon, you can speak to that mm -hmm. probably better than me, but there's people who do it arthroscopically, there's people mm -hmm. that do it from direct approach. Um, there's There are hand surgeons that are meticulous about doing their, their releases and some that are just general orthopedists, not just, but they're general orthopedists and they don't maybe do five or six a year mm -hmm. instead of ones that do five or six a week. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different flavors of it. Was it a complete release? Hard to tell. Um, was there something else that maybe caused it? Maybe they had a flexor tendinopathy that it irritated the nerve and it really wasn't the, mm -hmm. the transverse band that was the problem. My approach, I always ultrasound the nerve. If the nerve is really enlarged, there's a few criterion, a criteria that if it's enlarged to a certain degree in cross-sectional area, clearly it's still carpal tunnel and there's something that didn't get released properly. Mm -hmm. I can see that transverse carpal band. If it's like this, it's been released. If it's like this, mm -hmm. it's not. And you go up and down the entire carpal tunnel to make sure it's, in, it's been released the whole way. Um, so a lot of factors that play into it. Got it. And remember mm -hmm. that nerve that ends in the fingers started in the brain and has a long path to get there. Right. There's multiple places that you can have nerve compression or nerve mm -hmm. injury or other reasons not from compression like diabetes and other mm -hmm. medical problems, all of which can give you similar symptoms. Yeah, yeah. 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 The numb, tingly extremity is always a little bit of a mystery yeah. that we have to sort out, right? Yeah. A diagnostic quandary. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, thanks for wrapping up. We got to most of our callers' questions tonight. The winner of our prize tonight is Jim from Ocoma. Thank you, Jim, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this.
Looking for a source of trusted health information? Grab a copy of your local newspaper or read online the newest Prairie Doc Perspective, a weekly health and medical column. Head to prairiedoc.org to access all archive columns today. We all know that exercise is great for our overall health. Exercise is important for our cardiovascular health, of course, which is why the American Heart Association recommends 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise every week. No less importantly, and especially as we get older, another huge benefit of exercise is in fall and injury prevention. Starting an exercise routine, especially when starting from scratch, can be daunting. The simplest way to get started is to start a timed walking routine. Start with 15 minutes per day. If you can't walk outdoors or on a treadmill, find a long hallway or a large indoor space like a store or mall and just walk. If you are consistent, you will find that week by week, you'll be able to increase your time, ideally up to 30 minutes a day or more. If you have a friend or family member who shares the same goal, a walking partner will increase your odds of success. If you have a condition or disability that keeps you from walking, alternatives abound. Some people are much more able to use a stationary bike or exercise in a pool. Chair exercise or upper body only routines can be found online. Use the same principles starting at 15 minutes and increase the time gradually. Already got walking or your alternative down? You can increase the intensity by exercising more briskly or adding some hills or resistance to your routine. And better yet, you can add some strength training to maintain and build muscle. No fancy equipment is needed. Start with some squats from a sturdy chair. Try a 30 second plank. Adding some variety to your routine is great to keep things interesting and reduce any risk of overuse injury. There's some great ways to work on exercise in a group if your community has access. Many communities have free group chair exercises or walking groups that you can try out. If able, try a yoga, Pilates, or Tai Chi class. That pesky friend who keeps inviting you to play pickleball? So say why not and give it a go. Probably the most important thing to help you be consistent with exercise is to find activities that you actually enjoy doing. So don't be afraid to try something new. Our exercise abilities and goals might change as we get older, but the benefits of moving our bodies are present at all ages. So get out there and move. You'll be glad you did. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Buchanan and Dr. Rasmussen for volunteering their time to help us learn more about orthopedics. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online. Listen to us live every Wednesday morning at 9.30 on KBRK Brookings. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever podcasts can be found. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of health information based on science built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people.
what is one type of medicine that combines nutrition, physical activity, behavior, and possibly medication? Obesity medicine. A practical guide to obesity medicine next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. I'm Carter Holm, and uh, I have been a nurse for about eight and a half years. Worked for the first half of my career in a nursing home, uh, but now I'm at a Vera McKinnon inpatient rehab. My dad worked with On Call, the Prairie Doc, and started the Healing Words Foundation. And uh, after he passed, we decided as a family that we would take turns on the board to represent uh, what we feel is our dad's best wishes. So I feel like I've been involved with it my whole life, but uh, specifically the last two years working on the board. It's an incredible resource for our community and um, with the, the hard work of the volunteers, we're providing a resource to the community of South Dakota that is pretty rare to help prevent people from needing to go to the hospital. You know, to prevent the spread of misinformation. You know, providing that science-based approach uh, really was a passion of my dad's and something that we're really, we're really honored to continue. It gives people that first step because it's a way that we can talk to our physician without having to make an appointment or having to wait or having to frankly spend any money. You know, a free service to help provide information, helping prevent potential hospital stays or more serious health issues. My dad was a physician, my mom uh, a nurse practitioner. When I graduated from high school, the one thing I knew was I did not want to go into medicine. <laughs> and then as I grew and matured, the idea of having a stable career that allowed me to help people became sort of my driving focus. And uh, On Call with the Prairie Doc started so long ago with the idea of helping people. It has inspired me in that, you know, I'm a professional nurse, but I'm a helper first and foremost. For more information or to donate, go to www.prairiedoc.org or send your donations to Post Office Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota, 57006. Thank you for your support. Major funding for On Call with Prairie Doc has been provided by. At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello, possibility. Hello, healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions. Brookings Health System. Ophthalmology Limited. South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians. Avera Heart Hospital. First Bank and Trust. Dakota Allergy and Asthma. Vance Thompson Vision. Monument Health. Black Hills Medical Society. Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society. Peer District Medical Society. Sioux Falls District Medical Society. Yankton District Medical Society. Orthopedic Institute.
Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swift Health Communications. Thank you.